Welcome to The Lost Debate Show. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we recorded our episode earlier today before this Merrick Garland press conference. Uh, we had a whole segment about Mar-a-Lago and the search for documents and the whole question about Trump's culpability and you know future legal exposure. So most of this segment is still in there. We just took out a few things that are now rendered moot. But I wanted to just start the episode explaining a little bit about how we see the events of today. Basically, what Merrick Garland did was he stepped up and he said a few things of note. Number one is he said that he's filed a motion to unseal the documents, particularly the warrant and the property uh, sort of inventory of what they took from Mar-a-Lago. And so they've filed this motion in federal court. And what's notable about this motion is if you read it, it gives Trump the ability to block the release of these documents. And so essentially, the ball is in Trump's court right now. Uh, the second notable thing that Garland said was that he personally approved the search on Trump's property. And so he's saying, look, I own this. Uh, and then the third thing he said was, look, like their standard practice is to use what he says the least obtrusive means possible. And I think those words were really carefully selected because essentially what he's saying is we've tried other methods to get these documents back. And that was actually confirmed by reporting that happened before Garland's press conference. The New York Times and others reported that the Department of Justice had actually issued a subpoena to Trump for those documents earlier in the spring. And the implication is that he ignored that subpoena. And finally, Garland ended his press conference with a full-throated defense of the FBI. This comes as there was an attempted attack on the Cincinnati FBI office. And so I think Garland is defending his people. He's defending the men and women inside of the Department of Justice who, you know, Garland employs. He's their boss. And, you know, as we talk about in this segment, there's a lot of heated rhetoric uh, that we talk about later in this episode, just directed towards the FBI right now, coming from the right wing of American society. And so Garland seems particularly uh, focused on that, keeping his people safe and defending the reputation of the FBI. Let's get into the episode. If you have laws A, B, C, and D, and you say, you know, given my limited resources, I'm only going to prosecute this person for C and D, that's one thing. But it's a different thing to say, oh, I'm actually only going to ever enforce A and B. Jaywalking is illegal in a lot of places. I just don't think if I had prosecutors, I would have them spend time on that. There's a difference between that and saying, I don't believe in this from an ideological perspective, so I won't enforce it. You have to think about it, not just with a particular law that's being ignored here, but one that you like or one that you hate. Ricky, you have some big news. What are you going to be doing tomorrow? Yes, I will be on Bill Maher tomorrow on a panel with Piers Morgan, just the three of us. So it'll certainly be um, an interesting time. I'm excited out in L.A. Uh, right now prepping for it. So, yeah, tune in. Well, congratulations. And Thank you. I, I know our listeners will tune in. Just make sure you shout out Ricky on the internets. I think this will be a big moment for you. You nervous? Somehow not really, I think. I don't know. It's it's so unpredictable on that show that I've just decided not to over overanalyze it and just kind of roll with the punches there. So I'm I'm excited. Well, and I meant to call you about this yesterday, but my um, co-host of another show I do, Jason Kander, he uh, he's been on a couple times, and he told me the one thing to keep in mind is when he's doing the new rules, 
be conscious of the faces that you make because yeah. you're going to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> they pan to you a lot. So I've been working yes. on my laughing without like a double chin or anything too funky. Yeah, that and just be careful what you laugh at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's, it's like I think he throws curveballs. All right. Well, that's really exciting. We're going to be tuning in, obviously, on the team. On this show, we have a scintillating story that you've all been waiting for. You know, hold on to your applause because we're going to be talking about the IRS Then we're going to be bringing you updates on notable primaries in Wisconsin and Minnesota and discuss the emerging challenges to the Visa MasterCard duopoly. And we've also got a controversial move from Ron DeSantis, who suspended a state prosecutor over his refusal to enforce an abortion ban. And finally, it's Thursday, and that means that I have a radical idea to share. But we begin with more Alago. That is not a joke I wrote. But it's been a wild week in the world of Donald Trump, as well as the media landscape around him. And there's all the fallout from the FBI seizing documents on Monday. We talked about it a little bit on Tuesday, but this news continues. The president himself is in, in the middle of another big legal uh, back and forth because he sat for a deposition as part of the civil probe into the Trump organization that happened here in New York. Ricky, I think a good place to start is just to remind our audience of what we know about this timeline as it relates to Trump and these documents. Can you give us just a run through of of what we know so far? Yeah. So just to be clear, it seems like the reason for this raid is the documents and the boxes of documents that Trump has, but we don't yet have 100% clarification on that. That's based on widespread reporting, though, and it, it seems to be corroborated by a ton of different sources and insiders. But to give a sense of where these documents have been and why they're in the FBI's purview right now. It starts in January of 2021 when Trump left the White House, obviously under pretty poor circumstances with an unknown number of boxes. And then late that year, the National Archives and Records Administration contacted his team to attempt to get potentially classified documents back that would have been contained in them. Um, In January, he returned 15 missing boxes. Then in June, um, senior DOJ officials met with Trump's lawyers at Mar-a-Lago over concerns that that potentially was not everything that that he had that was potentially classified or um, a security threat, theoretically. Then not long after, the FBI asked for a stronger lock on the storage room where the boxes were being uh, held. Trump evidently or his team evidently showed them where they were located and his aides added a padlock. Then sometime over the summer with um, ongoing negotiations between the FBI and Trump's representatives about getting these documents back, they start to deteriorate. The Washington uh, Post reports that there were concerns that not everything was turned over that kind of grew and grew and grew. And then on August 5th, prosecutors submitted an affidavit and the magistrate approved to um, essentially break in and take back these documents and repossess them. And on August 8th, that warrant was executed. And so now here we are, and there's a lot of speculation and back and forth. And I think a lot of jumping to conclusions that's happening on the basis of what this this raid was actually about. But that's kind of the story of what we definitely know about where these boxes have been and how we ended up here. The response is more interesting than the actual action so far, because there's just so much we can learn. I think when we look at the action itself, We talked on Tuesday about a whole bunch of different possibilities. It seems now, based on some additional reporting that's happened, that this was about the classified documents. And it's going to come down to a very simple question. Did Trump have documents in his purview that he didn't give back 
that were of such a high level that they re- revealed potentially sources and methods, meaning you know, the identities and collection methods of intelligence overseas, secrets we have on our enemies or on ourselves, et cetera, something so high level that the federal government was really concerned over safety and national security of those documents. That's one possibility, right? The other possibility on the other extreme is that this was some kind of speculative adventure and that they were just fishing, right? I have my opinion. I think that given what I know about this is an FBI director that was appointed by Trump and a DOJ attorney general who you know was confirmed on a bipartisan basis and that's been rather careful in the public square so far. I would, if I were betting, I would bet on the first, but obviously we don't know yet, but that hasn't stopped people from, I think, having some really heated reactions. You know, I think this is an attack on our constitutional republic. I think it's an attack on the rule of law. This is the FBI being used as a political weapon against your opponents. They broke a one of these fundamental traditions of this republic that I don't know if we'll ever recover from over the Presidential Records Act. That's... The, I think that this is one of the darkest elements or darkest like weeks of American history right now. And any Republican and any host, anyone who claims to put on our team jersey and doesn't actively advocate for the dismantling, dismembering, complete restructuring, if at all, of all of our intelligence agencies, there is a special place in hell for people like you. So I definitely take exception to jumping to conclusions. I think it's irresponsible and it's going to definitely inevitably whip up a lot of Trump supporters and people in that camp. But I would say to lend some credence to the fact that people might have lost some trust in the FBI, like I'm completely sympathetic to the Project Veritas raid I thought was completely inappropriate and a breach of just like the journalistic um, freedom to report on something. And I think that was that was disturbing. And people were upset about the letter that basically dubbed parents domestic terrorists. But that doesn't like I'm very sympathetic to concerns about how the FBI potentially has been kind of engaging in some degree of misconduct potentially in those cases. But I don't think that that excuses looking at this through a conspiratorial lens necessarily. I think that, you know, we need to back up and actually wait to hear more. And- but I think like, I don't want to skirt past what these people are saying. Stephen Crowder, who right now has the number five podcast uh, on Apple for politics podcasts has a huge audience. Like, I, I think that the response here is revealing of a group of people who are a more egregious version of the defund. They're like, all right, let's defund our national security apparatus because they have inconvenient things to say about when we break the law. Well, I think that what this comes down to is that there's a group of Trump supporters that will see this as the the guy under siege, the enemy of the deep state sort of narrative. Like that's just going to fit that narrative no matter what. But then I think that there are a large group of more conservative leaning people who were like reluctant, ambivalent Trump voters who could be swayed one way or another on the basis of this. And I would much rather live in a world where Trump did something that warranted this and not that the the DOJ is being politicized. Like, I think the latter is a much scarier world, to be honest. But, you know, it's not a partisan thing to say that the DOJ should be doing this. I mean, we have like the weirdest group of people probably I could imagine that are um, ringing the alarm bells on this, including Andrew Cuomo, who we haven't heard from for a (laughs) while, Um, Andrew Yang and John Bolton. And I've heard a lot of other people kind of just say, 
I'd love some clarity. I'd love to actually just hear the reason so that people, you know, you're giving an inch to this narrative that Trump's under siege and people are going to run a mile with it. And I think that there are a lot of people who are in that kind of like maybe they voted for Trump, but not because they really wanted to, but because that's just the option that was in front of them who could be swayed one one way or another on the basis of this event. But I think you can probably concede that the very people here who are saying, you know, uh, dismantle the intelligence agencies. You know, Dinesh D'Souza actually used the term "abolish the FBI." Uh, these are the these people are not going to be satisfied. Whatever happens, like if they don't bring charges no. against, yeah, Trump, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think yeah. if they don't bring, they're charges in like the the former camp that I described. That no matter what right. happens, this is this is going to confirm their narrative. But then there's the latter camp that I think is actually a huge faction of Republicans and and moderates who don't really want to be Trump voters, but have been in the past. You know, I think most people in Trump's orbit are not even trying to argue that he didn't break the law. They're not trying to argue that he wasn't in possession of classified material. Um, and I thought Th- Thomas Chatterton Williams, I think, put it well. He said, you can't ever hold accountable a president who flouts the law for fear of the precedent it sets. Then it sets the precedent that presidents are simply free to flout the law. And that's where I am right now, which is like, look, there's a factual question we need to answer. Were there documents that were dangerous for Trump to have in his possession? And was he refusing to hand those over? If the answer is yes, they should get these documents back. Maybe they don't charge him, but they just get them back. If the answer is no, then I would need an explanation from the FBI. Yeah, I agree. I'm not in the camp of people who are saying that like, oh, the FBI couldn't have done this because it's a former president. I don't like that's just an above the law sort of argument that doesn't sit well with me. But I think that because it's a former president, we might want to address the fact that this happened in a slightly different and potentially unprecedented way. But this, Ricky, wasn't the only legal trouble that Trump was in this week. It's actually astonishing where we find ourselves. These are like two very Trump heavy episodes in a row. So hopefully we'll get a breather from this next week. But Trump was in front of Tish James uh, for a deposition and he answered one and only one question over the course of this four hour deposition in New York yesterday and it was his name. Uh, And then he just repeated same answer over and over and over again. And I feel a little bit differently about this one for people who aren't longtime listeners. I've been critical of the James investigation, not because I have strong opinions about whether Trump broke any law or not, but because Tish James, when she was running for office, was very clear about her motivation to prosecute Trump in a general sense and really politicized this investigation before it happened. And so although I think there's you know tremendous hypocrisy for Trump, like pleading the fifth when he was you know going after Hillary Clinton for pleading the fifth and saying that if you plead the fifth, you're guilty. All this aside, obviously, I think that hypocrisy is notable. I don't think Tish James should be leading this investigation. I think she should have walled it off. And although I think Garland has acquitted himself much better, so I I separate him and his conduct from anything else here, it's very frustrating to me as somebody who just wants an impartial set of investigations, especially when you're involving politics, right? Yeah, I feel very much the same. Although I would say that the the optics of that having happened and the videos of him back in the day talking about how pleading the fifth is um, automatically incriminating are, um, are pretty poor. But I don't know about you, but I'm kind of ready to talk about the IRS. I've had a lot of Trump. Yeah. Okay. So we'll do a little <laughs> break from Trump, although I imagine you'll have to talk about it with Bill Maher tomorrow. So it's good yeah. practice for you. Indeed. I think- um, let's turn to the story about the IRS. And this is obviously not exciting on its face, but I want our listeners to bear with us on this because I do think it's really important. It's something that affects most of us. Uh, the Democrats' new spending bill gives Washington's least popular bureaucrats 
Uh, and that says something. $80 billion of new funding over 10 years to, they say, improve the agency. I think their critics say other things. Ricky, tell us what's going on here. So under the Inflation Reduction Act, there is a new provision to almost double the IRS's funding and also potentially double its staffing with up to 87,000 new employees. And so those who are in favor of this say that it's expected to bring in an additional $200 billion in tax collection, that it's a response to chronic understaffing, that you know taxpayers will actually be able to have someone answer the phone if they call or the web systems won't be crashing. And a lot of people that are that are more excited about this news are saying that this is going to end up going over going after like high income tax evaders. And that's where that $200 billion is going to come from. Um, I have some other feelings, but I'll, I'll throw it to you for some initial reactions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm generally for the IRS having the staff it needs. I have both personal experience with New York's tax authorities and just a general sense that the IRS is not staffed properly. So here's my case for this. From 2010 to 2018, the number of IRS employees has dropped more than 20% and 30% drop in those involved in enforcement. We have 144 million taxpayers in this country, and this would take us to about 87,000 employees. That would take us from 18, uh, 1,834 taxpayers per IRS worker, which is a ton per worker, to 871 taxpayers per IRS worker. The budget of the IRS has dropped 15% over the past decade. There's, <laughs> they have such antiquated systems that they have this computer system that's running on a programming language created in the 60s called COBOL that isn't even taught anymore. And there are 7 million unprocessed individual tax returns from last year. So you put that all together, you say, this is an agency that to me feels seriously underfunded. Those unprocessed tax, retur tax returns are real. It's frustrating. Uh, as the Washington Post has reported, it's hard to get somebody even on the phone to talk to about this kind of stuff. I've dealt with this in New York where I pay my taxes, but I happen to move in 2016 from Tennessee to New York literally on the last week of the year. And New York ran some automated thing saying I owed taxes to New York that year, which I clearly don't. And I haven't been able to get anybody on the phone in New York to even fix that issue since then. So I've now just written a letter and I'm just waiting for the IRS to reply to me. And that was four, no, six years ago now. That's crazy, you know? No, I don't disagree with the fact that the IRS has been fundamentally incompetent, but I also think that that's like a consequence of our larger tax code issues and how ridiculous all of this process is and how, you know, all of us need to individually calculate our taxes that the government should theoretically know, but then it's all kind of a mystery and a trap and only, you know, higher income earners can afford the best accountants to do all that for them. And then they all come back with different numbers and some studies that people have submitted the same income to different accountants. So I think it's a bad reflection on our system that we can't figure out with the staffing that we do have how to just make our basic taxation system work. But I would also say that one thing that I take huge issue with is I don't really buy this claim that it's only going to be high income tax evaders that are getting trapped by this because, you know, highest income earners have the best accountants. They maximize all the loopholes possible. And oftentimes, even if it seems like they're not paying enough taxes, it's because our tax code does kind of facilitate that in the end. But there was this interesting uh, statistic that came from the Joint Committee on Taxation that analyzed uh, what's going to happen as a result of this new funding. And they found that 78 to 90% of that $200 billion of collection would come from small businesses earning under $200,000 a year and four to 9% from them earning more than 500,000, anything in excess of that, which 
could potentially conflict with Biden's claim that he wasn't going to tax anyone. I think what was what was it four hundred thousand dollars or more? Yeah, four hundred. This is an interesting number. First, I, and I don't want to play semantics. This wouldn't be a, even if that were true, it wouldn't be a tax increase. It would be enforcing existing tax law. But but I'm confused. But it's as not to- coming from like the you know the the narrative that all the the senators that voted for this bill are going on TV talking about is like oh we're just going to enforce all the all the big guys who are running away from taxes and those are actually small businesses and theoretically like it could just be a mistake because people make mistakes on taxes all the time and you look at the history of where our audits have been going more than half of the audits just in 2021 last year were people making less than $75,000 so if we feel like this is an appropriate use of the members of the IRS who are already employees there if that's an appropriate use of their time going after people who potentially like are struggling financially in the first place then I I mean I don't see how unless there's some sort of fundamental reform adding 87,000 more people is going to be that helpful. I'm confused about that claim by the Joint Committee on Taxation not because I don't think it's correct or that they're biased or anything like that. I trust them as an entity. But there's things they're saying that seem to be conflicted by some other pieces of data out there, right? So the IRS between 2015 and 2019 saw a drop in audits of 44%. During, and that was during this period of time of less funding, less staff and stuff that we talked about. There was a 75% drop for those making a uh, million dollars or more. So meaning when this, the IRS was underfunded, it was particularly the richest people who were being audited less. You would think based on that, that if now you fix that underfunding issue it would be those very people that would be audited more. I mean, to me, if I were going to vote for giving the IRS more money as someone in the government, as a representative, I would say, okay, well, first show me that you're actually going to use your time and energy to go after people that are making money and earning a considerable income and might actually benefit the taxpayers and not just auditing like normal day-to-day Americans. Like to me, I feel like this needs to be contingent on the fact that this money is being used in a proper way. But look, let me just get to this claim that you're saying, because I do think the IRS commissioner did respond to this in a way to try to assuage the concerns that you're talking about. He wrote a letter to the Senate uh, in which he said that there is a directive that he is following that they will not raise relative rates of audits for those making less than $400,000. Translation meaning whatever the the rate is, percentage of audits that are happening for people under $400,000, he's committed to not raising that percentage. So in a way, if if we trust him to follow through on that claim, and I don't know why he would be like particularly motivated not to, then that would potentially solve the issue. But my sense is these are overwhelmed people, so they don't have the resources, right? They're using shitty computers, they don't even have enough people to answer the phones. You know, that number right now, it's 1,834 taxpayers per IRS worker. That to me is an absurd ratio, especially it would be one thing if there were like Elon Musk was like, this seems like an area for automation. It'd be one thing if we really brought to bear our best minds to create a better automated system and, you know, AI, right? Which this would seem like a really good area for that. AI plus good people would make a better system. And removing the the lobbyists of like TurboTax and all the right. people who have the stake in making this as confusing a process as possible. Yeah, like I'm not I, I'm not demonizing like IRS employees. I think it's a shitty job and they're also enforcing pretty awful laws that are super confusing and convoluted. But, you know, I would think that in a world where we might just have a more simple, clear taxation system, 1,800 taxpayers to one employee should be fine. 
Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't really like the idea of just like throwing more money at a broken system, like clearly not functioning without any sort of like you need to reform to some extent. To me, the metaphor here is like when if we were to just say, all right, we need to simplify the system. Therefore, we don't want to fund the IRS. I don't think the simplification is ever going to come or at least anytime soon. So I think like there's two separate questions. I agree we should have a flat tax. We should simplify the system. We should get rid of most deductions. You know, so I think you and I probably agree roughly on the direction to go more simple. We probably yeah. disagree on the size of the government that comes out of that. But until we do that, to me, you know, because a lot of these people criticizing this, you know, Ted Cruz got on Larry Kudlow. Imagine IRS agents descending upon America l like a swarm of locusts. And by the way, these IRS agents aren't there to go after billionaires. They're there to go after you. And I think he misstated the amount of money here. He talked about $80 billion. It's like a six-fold increase. It was $80 billion over 10 years. But like... Ted Cruz is as responsible for our screwed up tax code as anybody else. And so when he gets up there and talks about, oh, hey, like we're giving the IRS too much power, I'm like, look, give them a simpler tax code. And then then we could talk about having fewer IRS agents. Yeah. Well, let's talk about elections. Ricky, we've got a couple updates based on this week's primaries. There's some notable results here. I want to start with Wisconsin. And I'm just going to do this really quick because I just want to flag this as a really interesting race. So we now have Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, against the sitting senator, Ron Johnson. This is going to be one of five toss-ups overall, according to the Cook Political Report, and the only toss-up seat with a Republican incumbent because Pennsylvania is an open seat. Mandela Barnes is a 35-year-old, you know, many people believe very progressive rising star. Uh, and Johnson is perhaps Trump's fiercest ally in the U.S. Senate. And there isn't a lot of polling on this one yet. The last poll conducted on this was from June before Barnes wrapped up the nomination. And it had it essentially as a statistical tie. In the same poll, only 16% of people said they had an unfavorable view of Barnes, but they really didn't know who he was. His name recognition was very low compared to a whopping 46% who had an unfavorable view of Johnson, uh, who that's pretty high on favorables. I would say these are two very, very interesting candidates, and they're both going to be calling each other extreme. I have my opinions about who's more extreme, but I'm just going to leave it to listeners. Well, that sounds like that's going to be an interesting race. And we had another one out in Minnesota, um, the Democratic primaries for the 5th District out there, which um, had Ilhan Omar versus Don Samuels, which is an interesting kind of uh, mashup here because we have a national name versus a newcomer to give a sense of that statistically. On Twitter, she has 3 million followers versus as of last night, um, I saw he had 590. Nine zero, not 1,000? 590. Wow. 590. And so he's kind of propping himself up as a moderate. Um, he kind of called her out for being more defund the police. And he was saying he's more pro-police. And it was widely considered to be a long shot that he would ever give her a run for her money. But she narrowly squeaked by in the end. And, you know, there was a lot of Twitter buzz about it and people didn't really expect it. But then I saw a lot of people um, in the comments that were local out there that said, you know, from from our perspective, this actually yeah. isn't that surprising, which is, you know, anecdotal. But it is interesting to see these national names that feel like they're just kind of household names versus the, the the optics here of a guy with 590 followers who actually really came close. So Yeah, he had something interesting to say. Don Samuels, her challenger, had something to say after he lost. You cannot give poor constituent service. Put your own dreams above the dreams and visions and desires of your community. Hold scant and scarce 
town hall meetings, not be available to the press that serves your community, and get reelected easily. It kind of echoes the charges against AOC that we talked about. Yeah, I was just about to say that. And I'm not saying I know for sure. I have a little bit more color on what's going on with AOC here in New York. But I think there is a cost to national celebrity in, when you're a politician, especially a politician who's promising a lot to the voters. And I think that's part of what Samuels was saying. And, I, and hopefully this is a cautionary tale to whether you're progressive, you know, super conservative or whatever. But if you're making bold promises to your voters at a certain point, you've got to deliver. And, you know, to me, I think that she and others yeah. like her are going to keep facing pretty fierce competition in these primaries until and unless they change the way that they spend time in their districts. Yeah. Well, Ricky, let's move on to another story. Much of what we buy every day, one way or another, goes through two companies, Visa and MasterCard. And that duopoly is getting a lot of attention lately from Congress, from Fortune 500 companies. But there's also a major scandal brewing here. These companies have largely skated by for most of our lives. Like I, I, I don't remember a lot of heat on any of these, but at one time, you've got a lawsuit going on against Visa MasterCard for their ties to MindGeek, which is the parent company of Pornhub. Uh, there's bipartisan legislation taking aim at Visa and MasterCard about their processing market um, dominance. There's an antitrust push for mid-sized and large merchants. And then there's heightened scrutiny around rewards points. So they're facing assault on many fronts. But let's start with this MindGeek Pornhub situation. There's a lot of facts here, but I'll essentially boil it down to this. In December 2020, MasterCard and Visa said they had prohibited the use of their cards on the adult website Pornhub after the New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof reported that the platform included videos of child abuse and rape. But the announcement and pronouncements from Visa and MasterCard only went halfway because essentially there was a back-end way to do advertising on those sites that Visa and MasterCard continue to participate in. And that was going on for a while, but then this month, Judge Cormac Carney of the U.S. District Court of Central California refused Visa's request to be dismissed from a case that claims it conspired to help MindGeek uh, from profiting from images of child sexual abuse. So basically, this judge said, not that they're necessarily guilty, but they can't get out of the early stages of this lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And then Visa and MasterCard quickly issued kind of different statements in tone, but essentially both backing away, saying they're going to stop using this back-end advertising arm. I don't really think it's that shocking that on a porn website where people can upload videos, there are going to be illegal videos and illegal content. That's not like as so long as Pornhub's policy is that that gets removed if it's flagged. I think that's um, obviously an important part of the conversation. And my understanding is that that's definitely the case, but that it's, you know, the quantity of videos is so large that it's impossible to get everything, which is kind of the case on any sort of social media platform. I guess this is a weird use of the word social media, but essentially it is. Yeah. I think just on that claim, Ricky, just to clarify, I think that's part of what they're trying to decide in this case is did Pornhub have enough controls in yeah. place? Did they take things down when they were flagged properly and all that? So I think I'm pretty. I think that's still a factual yeah. matter to be determined. I think the allegation. But to be clear, that, that there's at no point in time was this something that was explicitly allowed on their no. platforms. Yeah. It just would have been not adequately policed. Yeah, I would say that the allegation is that was implicitly allowed. That like they just they didn't do enough or they ignored you know mm -hmm. complaints, et cetera, et cetera. Now I don't know the answer to that question. That's just. But one thing we do know for sure is that there were minors on this site. Like and Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that uh there were a lot of them. And so yeah. I think that's 
that's what Visa and MasterCard find themselves in the middle of right now. And so I think, you know, at that at that news break, um, PayPal was an example of an organization that actually like fully cut ties versus I think the the nuance here with Visa and MasterCard is that, you know, people couldn't use their like consumers couldn't use their credit cards through them or their debit cards on the front facing platform, but that the advertisements that were being shown to them, that business was still being facilitated by um, Visa and MasterCard. So to me, I mean, the bigger issue is just like the public facing honesty thing that yeah. is Visa or MasterCard complicit in child porn. Like I don't, that seems like a bigger stretch to me, but I think it's an interesting question. And, and obviously this is like an important cultural problem, but then it also gets to the um, larger antitrust conversation about these two companies anyways, and how they clearly have a duopoly over credit card fees and swipe fees. Just to give a sense of the scale here, they represent 83% of credit cards in our country. They make $55 billion in swipe fees just last year. They cost the average US family $700 per year just in those fees, and they tend to hit lowest income earners the hardest. And this is a problem at a scale that's seven times that in terms of retailers in Europe. They American retailers end up paying seven times more in these fees just to um, utilize these services. Yeah, because Europe is capping card fees, right? That's their their rule. They cap these yeah. fees. I didn't know this until looking into this. I always thought when you swipe a credit card, there's just one fee at issue, right? It goes right to the credit card company. But I didn't really think of like, all right, if you have a Chase Sapphire Reserve Visa or whatever, there's Chase and then there's Visa. And actually, there's two different things going on here. There are two parts of what we call a swipe fee. Yeah. There's the interchange fee, which is the fee a bank takes for each transaction because it issues the credit card. So that would be going to Chase in that case. Then there's the network fee, which is the fee that companies like Visa and MasterCard take for processing transactions over their network. Mm -hmm. And what this bill would do is allow retailers to bypass the network fee and go to to open that up to more players. So I think that would decrease that particular fee. I don't think it would do a whole lot based on what I could see to the bank fee, but I think it's saying like, look, what 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 value do Visa and MasterCard really play in this transaction? And I'm not a security expert, expert I don't know. I just suspect that there are probably more than two companies uh, who can provide that service. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're at an interesting moment here where these companies are being challenged, obviously, by that that Senate bill that you just discussed, the lawsuit, and then also um, further lawsuits that have been successful on behalf of companies. Walmart, Kroger, and Amazon have all sued successfully for them fixing fees, and Disney is now joining that group and pursuing similar legal action. So I think it's, it's an interesting kind of pivotal moment here to see how this monopoly monopoly fares. Yeah. And we'll link to two things in the show notes uh, because I don't think it's worth belaboring, but there's a paper from the Boston Fed, which talks about how high income consumers uh, actually want to paying less through this entire system that exists while mm -hmm. low income earners want to paying more. There's another piece from Vox that we'll link to that talks about these these rewards. I'm a huge reward fan uh, and, and with credit cards, points, travel, all that kind of stuff. But it talks about how those rewards are actually regressive in many ways, like high income people pulling the sort of excess of the system out, basically all this money we charge the merchants gets passed down to cash buyers or people who don't have these like fancier cards while we reap the rewards to it. It will make me very unpopular with my friends, but read that article because I do think that was a whole world I didn't even know about. And you, you often wonder like, how is it that they're giving me a hundred thousand sign up points or whatever? So that article goes through that and explains that. And it's mm -hmm. it's dicier than I'd like it to be. But let's move on, Ricky, to 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he suspended a state prosecutor last week over his pledge to not enforce the state's 15-week abortion ban. It's a controversial move. Some people love it. Some people hate it. And Ricky, walk us through just the bare facts of this and where you come out. Yeah. So this is the top prosecutor in Tampa. And the basis that DeSantis suspended him on is neglect of duty. Um, he also pledged to not uh, prosecute any crimes uh, involving sex reassignment for minor citizens in um, in Florida, which is another law that's gone on the books recently that he took a stand against. Um, and on the abortion front, he's one of 90 prosecutors who have signed on to sort of similar um, like blanket, I'm not going to enforce this sort of policies. Um, and DeSantis also points to non-enforcement for other criminal violations, but this seems to have been kind of the, the impetus for him to take a stand. And um, to quote DeSantis here, he said, to take a position that you have veto power over the laws of the state is untenable. Um, and he put in a stand-in for the time being, Susan Lopez, until an election can be held um, because this guy was elected by voters. And then the Florida Senate must decide whether to reinstate him and he can also sue. So there's um, potential that he does end up back. But this is obviously a controversial move, as was his initial move to say, I'm I'm not going to follow through with this law, period. Right. So um, and the law here says a governor could suspend state officials for uh, misfeasance, malfeasance, neglect of duty, mm-hmm. drunkenness, incompetence, permanent inability to perform official duties or commission of a felony. There is precedence here. There's a few, but I think the most notable here was when Rick Scott was the governor. He removed an official, a local official for a deficient response to the Parkland shooting. A federal judge ruled that the due process for the former sheriff was not violated when the state Senate refused to reinstate him in part because they they said, look, Scott went through the proper processes here. So, you know, DeSantis, he had pretty, I think, aggressive, you know, as DeSantis's sort of style, he wasn't very measured when he talked about this. Well, Tucker, you documented the destruction that we've seen with these Soros prosecutors around the country, where they basically take it upon themselves to determine which laws should be followed and which laws should not be followed. And I can tell you in Florida's constitution, uh, that constitution vests the veto power in the governor, not an individual district attorney or state attorney where they can pick and choose. So Ricky, this is this is slightly complicated in the sense that, all right, the law says you can remove people, but the local legal ethics standards say prosecutors have broad discretion to decide which cases to charge and consider factors such as, quote, the impact of the prosecution or non-prosecution on the public welfare. I think most people agree that there's a thing called prosecutorial discretion. Which is like, look, I, I want to like, I will take into account the equities of a case to say I'm going to bring these charges and not those charges. Actually, DeSantis himself must believe in this because when the the raid of Mar-a-Lago happened, he said the raid of Mar-a-Lago is another escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies against the regime's political opponents. Seemed to be suggesting that hey, like, the decision by the Department of Justice to hold Trump accountable to the Records Act is they should have used their discretion against a former president and not charged them. That seems to be what DeSantis was saying there. I think he believes in prosecutorial discretion. I believe in it. I think this is a particularly aggressive case of it because this is a guy saying, here are entire laws, seems like potentially many of them, that I won't be following. Yeah, I think... um this is a this is a tough one for me because I am very sympathetic to the DeSantis sort of outlook here that 
I don't like the idea that in a city, someone can essentially be the one man legislature and say, this is what I think our laws should say. And this is what I don't think. And it's completely on the basis of, of personal opinion here. And, you know, some of the optics of him, like outside with a megaphone, um, talking about his, his personal reasonings here. It's like, it's, it's clearly a political choice. And I, and I don't love that because that's kind of, going past the voters who elected every official and that got these laws onto the books. Um, and I think that there's one, one interesting argument that comes from Charles Lipson. I think he wrote it for the spectator where he was talking about the, the specifics of this prosecutorial uh, discretion here, where if you have laws, A, B, C, and D, and you say, you know, given my limited resources, I'm only going to prosecute this person for C and D. And that's your initial reason. That's one thing, but it's a different thing to say, oh, I'm actually only going to ever enforce A and B. And that's yeah. period blanket statement. And so like, I, I do think that we have a new and concerning problem with these Right now, I mean, I could see it flipping and going to the other side, but right now, predominantly progressive uh, prosecutors are saying, I'm I'm not going to enforce this law, period. Like, I'm going to take the law into my own hands. I don't love that. But then I would also say, I don't love this like new use of power at, at the same time because he has been voted in twice. And if there was a recall election, I'd support that. I think the San Francisco way is a is a better route to actually make someone accountable if voters are not happy on a local sense. But, um, you know, I don't like that DeSantis is coming in and overriding voters who have not recalled anyone. Um, yeah, I also to give you don't some like numbers there. DeSantis uh, got 44.9% of the popular vote in this county in 2018, and Warren won his re-election with 53.37% of the vote. So more of a mandate. I know that's not the simple, that's not the, the only way to look at this, uh -huh. but something you said really strikes me, which is think of these situations with the facts changed to make it so that it's it's happening in the opposite partisan direction. So I would compare this to local officials not enforcing COVID mandates. Like you have to, you have to align that belief here. So to me, like, like, and it goes both ways, Democrats, Republicans, conservative liberals, like you have to think about it, not just with a particular law that's being ignored here, but one that you like or one that you hate change yeah. the facts. And yeah. to me, that's where I start to feel like, all right, I believe that resource allocation is a good reason to ignore a law. Right. Like if you just don't have enough people, everybody has to do mm -hmm. that. Like, like, look, jaywalking is illegal in a lot of places. Like, and a lot of people are just like, look, that's. It's not even that, it's not that I don't believe in jaywalking rules. Like I personally believe that like walking on the striped part of the pavement is safe and people should do it. I just don't think if I had prosecutors, I would have them spend time on that. Not, yeah. not because of an ideological reason, because of resources. There's a difference between that and saying, I don't believe in this mask mandate mm -hmm. from an ideological perspective. So I won't agree with, I won't enforce it. Then you just need to resign as prosecutor, in my opinion. And I think the same yeah. is true as here, as much as I sympathize with his underlying cause. Yeah. I mean, I, I fall into the same camp here in the end. Um, you know, there's the example that DeSantis didn't use this authority for sheriffs who weren't upholding gun restrictions. And, um, you know, there, I, I, to me, the precedent is dangerous that a, a governor can swoop in and make this stance. But I think also the precedent is, maybe not dangerous, but at least concerning that someone can kind of step in and say, well, now the laws are up to me on a local level. So I think, you know, it's, it's a challenging question, but I would say I prefer authority on the most local level versus, you know, the governor right. is a higher authority who's swooping in and 
um, overpowering someone who was duly elected. So this kind of stuff is working for DeSantis. So six mm. months into the pandemic, DeSantis's approval ratings within the state dipped to 43%. Now, or at least most recently, this is from June of 2022. After two years, I would say of a very aggressive cultural war politics, his approval rating currently sits around 53%. And he's been ticking up nationally within key constituencies within the Republican Party. So the politics here, whether people like it or not, are working for him at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, Ricky, let's end. We haven't done in a couple of weeks a radical idea. Uh, I've been saving one for a little while. Uh, Have you seen the show on Netflix called Anatomy of a Scandal? No. Have you seen this? No. So this is a show about a uh, barrister in England who's bringing a case of sexual assault against a member of parliament. And what's interesting about this case or this show is that I think a lot of American viewers are surprised to know that in England, prosecutors and defense attorneys actually come from the same office and they're often the same people. Meaning if you're a barrister, in one case, you can be a prosecutor and then the next day you could be assigned as a defense attorney in mm-hmm. another case. I think this is a really good model and one that we should we should at least implement in a couple places in the US to see how it affects the administration of justice. And the reason why I believe this is number one, it gives complete parity on staffing and competence. So we're able to say, no matter which side of the equation on justice uh, justice you're on, you're gonna get a an equal amount of talent, skill, and resources. So that's one reason why I like it. I think number two, I think it's good for lawyers who, whether you're a prosecutor or a public defender, your mm-hmm. charge is to administer justice and see that justice is served, which means that if you get exculpatory evidence or whatever, your job is not to just win the case, it's to actually serve justice and let that person off. Or in the case of the defense attorney, if somebody confesses to you that they did it, you have certain obligations or whatever. So I think it would be also good from an attitudinal perspective for people to see themselves as administrators of justice and not just people on one side of a system. So I guess I'll pause there and say, what do you think about implementing this here in the United States? Yeah, I don't know. I usually have problems with your ideas in some ways, but um, <laughs> I, on this one, I'm I'm on board. I don't know. I think it, I've always found it kind of strange that it would be different people. And I think that you can probably get jaded in one way or another, depending on what side you end up on. Yep. Um, yeah, as someone who's not like doesn't have a legal background and like didn't really know that for a while, like that that doesn't seem very logical to me. It, um, I right. yeah, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it is radical. Maybe I'm radical too. But for me, I don't, I'm not going to fight you on this one. Well, I'll give that's I'll, a first. I'll give our listeners a. I think you've agreed with some of them before, but uh, I always have some sort of issue though. I don't I know. Think- this is the first time I don't have a fight at all. So a a reading recommendation for listeners is a book called The Secret Barrister, which is a really cool book. It was a sensation in the UK. It's it's actually written by a secret barrister, somebody who was in the system. They actually have huge complaints. Like their their system has all sorts of problems. I don't think this thing I'm describing is the problem in their system. They're like underfunded and just incompetence and all sorts of stuff that also happens here. Really good book. What about the wigs that the barristers wear? Should we bring that to the United States? I'll pass. Yeah, yeah, me too. I don't, I'm not sure I like that either. <laughs> well, okay. I think that's it. That's our episode. Uh, good luck tomorrow, Ricky. We're going to be rooting for Thank you. Thank you. Uh, listeners, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, give us those five-star ratings. Talk about why you like this show because, you know, nuance, as we saw with this Alex Jones trial, we see it no, no matter where you are in the polarized media, you know, nuance has an audience. And I think if you love our show, 
go to the different platforms, like our show on YouTube, rate us wherever you get your podcasts, and say what it is you appreciate about this show because it really matters. We'll be back on Tuesday where we can, I guess, take a look at what Ricky did on Bill Maher and, and, and talk through what will be, I'm sure, an incredible performance. Ricky, good luck. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey, Wes Parnell, and Ariane Misra. Studio support by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Monica Spitia and Joe Engelbrecht. And video editing by Ava Maldonado.